when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. When I was little, we'd get in our car and we'd drive off to see my terrifyingly old great-grandmother. We called her a great nine. In North Wales, nine is what you call your nan or your grandma. We drive up to Cricketh, one of the most beautiful places in the world, snug, between the mountains of Snowdonia and the glittering waters of Cardigan Bay. Wonderful beach there, a wonderful ruined castle on the headland. And my great nine would tell me stories about history and about our family, most of which turned out to be complete nonsense. But one of them was about the last Prince of Wales, the last native Welsh Prince of Wales, Hoyn Glyndor, and how he'd stood up to the English, attempted to drive the English out of Wales and establish an independent Welsh kingdom. Well, given that England now playing Wales on the international stage in the Football World Cup. I thought this would be a chance to look back at Owen Glyndor's revolt. No one knows quite why it began. Edward I, a hundred years earlier, in the late 1200s and the 13th century, he had defeated the last of the Welsh princes and incorporated Wales into his English empire, building a series of mighty castles, some of the finest castles in the world that you'll be familiar with, particularly around the coasts of North and Northwest Wales. A hundred years later, Owen Glendour seemed to be living the life of, well, you could say a collaborator. He was living the life of a, an affluent gentry, an Anglo-Welsh family with mixed pedigree, heritage, traditions. And yet, on the 16th of September, 1400, Owen Glendour rose up in bloody rebellion against the English. Later, the English victors would call it the Welsh Revolt or the Glyndor Rising. But lots of people, especially in Wales, like to refer to it as the last war of independence. And Owen Glyndor has been seized upon by poets, by politicians, by historians, by my great nine, and many since, to tell a story of Welsh history, tell a story of opposition to English conquest. Much of this period is shrouded in obscurity. We have very little idea what happened. Sometimes we only have one or two fragmentary sources for an important event. But the man who knows those sources is Adam Chapman. He's a lecturer in medieval history at the Institute of Historical Research. If anyone can help us work out what happened during Owen Glyndor's revolt, it is Adam. It was an uprising that, as you'll hear, would go on really, for decades. It was an uprising that became enmeshed with the politics of the British Isles. In 1399, 
Henry IV had invaded, deposed his cousin, Richard II, from the throne. So England had been thrown into tumult. Big, powerful families like the Percys in the north took advantage of this time of upheaval to press their own claims and ambitions. So there's a lot going on. Plus, it's a time of prolonged struggle against neighbouring France. It's all encompassed within the Hundred Years' War period. So Owen found himself fighting not just in Wales, but involved in the power politics of Britain and Western Europe. So here's Adam to tell us all about Owen Glyndor's revolt and why it still matters today. Enjoy. T-minus 10. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And liftoff, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Adam, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So Wales has been fighting before the Normans arrived. Well, it's been fighting forever between people that live in what is now England, people who live in what is now Wales. But what was the status in the 14th century after a couple hundred years of the Normans pushing into Wales and uh, taking on the native princes? By the 14th century, it's all sort of settled down a bit. In the late 13th century, you have the final defeat of the princes of Gwynedd. So Florin Abgrethith, or Florin the Last, was defeated in 1282, uh, the Battle of Ithon Bridge. And Llewellyn, I'm sorry, get the pronunciation wrong, but Llewellyn was the last, you could sort of say, independent Welsh leader. Yes, that's right. And what about Owain Glyndor? He is now a Welsh hero, but his family, they were intimately connected with the English regime when he would have been born. That's right. And... One of the biggest surprises, really, is that he went and claimed that Welsh bit of his inheritance and looked to those bits of his ancestry and those bits of authority, because by the time his rebellion starts in 1400, he's probably about 50. His family are connected to two of the Welsh princely lines, that of Powys and of uh, Dehebar, which is southwest Wales, so Cardiganshire, effectively. But he is an officer in the, one of the lordships belonging to the Earls of Arundel, he fights in Arundel's retinues in 1387 and 1388 in France. He goes and serves in Scotland in the 1384-85. And we should say fighting for the English king. Absolutely, yes, yes. I mean, he's, from the English perspective, and by his own account, there's a case at the Court of Chivalry called the Scroop Grosvenor Trial, which is all about who has the right to use a particular coat of arms. And Scrope and Grosvenor have arrived at the same coat of arms. And he gives evidence to that trial. And he gives his evidence as a, an esquire of the English realm. As far as the English are concerned, as far as most of his contemporaries, Welsh too, are concerned, he's just another Welsh esquire. One at the wealthier end, sure, with a sort of more impressive lineage than most. But that's all he is. Although all is doing a lot of work, given what happens next. So he's an absolutely normal member of the Welsh squirearchy. He's got a military career, he's got administrative commitments. There are stories that he was educated at the Inns of Court in London, so he knew law, but certainly what we can say is he spoke at least four languages. So he knew Welsh, English, Latin and French. He's well-educated, he's an impressive figure in his own right. He knows his ancestry, he knows the ground, but he's also, he's part of the English realm, he's part of the status quo in the 14th century. So he's a guy from Welsh, descent from Welsh royalty, but generations after Wales has basically been conquered, he's having a conventional sort of aristocratic life of an English minor noble. 
So what happens? I wish I knew, is the honest answer. And I, there are various schools of thought about it. Probably the best known, but also probably wrong, uh, that it was a simple land dispute that got out of hand with his neighbour, Lord Griffith. Then. But declaring yourself Prince of Wales seems a bit of a jump, just because you're having a bit of trouble over who owns that field or who owns that bit of land. There are suggestions that he was not accorded the status that he felt he should have been. But again, it seems something of an overreaction. I think what we need to look to really is the context of England at the time, which is Richard II had been deposed in 1399. This meant that there is a degree of political instability in England. It opens up opportunities to do things. Not quite all bets are off, but if you think you've got a cause you can push, as various parts of the English nobility did several times, the king, Henry IV, has dubious validity, and thus that opens up the opportunities and possibilities to do other things to explore, other ways of being and thinking. So what precisely his motivation was in 1400, we don't know. All we know is that on September the 16th, 1400, at Sechath, which is his home in England, in the Dee Valley near Llangollen, in northeast Wales, he said, I am Prince of Wales. And he did so in the presence of, well, we know the names for about 30 individuals, but there are clearly more. It's a public event. It is an event where people say, I was there. We know who was there because at Rithin and at Oswestry, juries of English people who've just had their towns burned come together and say, oh yeah, Owen said he was doing this. He said he was going to become Prince of Wales and these people were there, which is remarkable. So what does he mean by being Prince of Wales at that time? <laughs> Difficult to say. So you've got Henry IV. He's nicked the throne off his cousin, Richard II. Proves a bit unpopular, all sorts of instability. He's got this kid who's going to be Henry V one day, who's at that stage really a child. And Owen organises this rebellion. What form does it take? You mentioned burning towns. These English almost colonies, settlements, places that people will be familiar with, places like Conway, often fortified, often with a big castle. Is he just sacking these places? What's going on? Yeah, pretty much. He's using the techniques he learned as part of the English war machine. He's going in, he's burning, he's saying, the King of England or your Lord, because it's not just the King, it's the March of Lords as well, cannot defend you. You know, he's undermining their authority by action, so he's burning the place. This is what the aristocracy do. They think that's perfectly fine. They don't care about the peasantry. They don't care about the residents of those towns, whoever they are, because those towns are mixed communities. They're not just English. They're not colonial settler communities as such. They are established. They've been there 100, 150 years. There are Welsh communities in those towns. There are English communities. In so they burn the place. They clearly make an effort to attack English interests, or well, royal interests, it's probably more accurate to say. So, And this is clearly planned over a long time because it's not just one force that's doing this. There's a multiple attacks at the same time in what's clearly a coordinated plan and the towns make a good symbol. And obviously the English respond and respond quite quickly and quite effectively because basically between September 1400 and April 1401, Owen's forces basically get beaten a lot. They lose pretty much every engagement they fight. 1401 is interesting because on Good Friday, 1401, two of Owen's supporters, who are from Anglesey, they, with 35 other people, walk into Conway Castle where the garrison at church because the garrison at church for the Good Friday Mass in the town, because there isn't a chapel with a priest and a roof on in the castle at that point. Some of the accounts suggest that they said, well, we've come here to do some repairs, which is interesting in itself. 
Welsh people do repairs on English castles. This is perfect, even in a time of war. Anyway, Rhys and Gullam and their mates walk in, close the gates, and uh, the garrison are left somewhat embarrassed in church, having realised they've been locked out of their own castle. And the only person more upset than the garrison, I suspect, is Henry IV, who says, well, it's your officers, to his son, Henry Prince of Wales, it's your officers that have lost this castle, it's your job to get it back. And the resulting siege or altercation negotiation lasts several months. So ultimately, I think five of Rhys and Gullam's men are executed, but the other 30 go free. Rhys and Gullam's own houses, of course, have been burnt at this point. You know, the English respond quickly and burn Sechaf, they burn the homes of the leading gentry. But mostly they go on the run. Owen goes on the run at this point. So it is a process called chevaucher, which is basically riding in, looting and burning as you go, and then riding out again before the Trump have any chance to get into trouble. This is what the English do in France. And it's what the Welsh have been doing on the borders of England for, for centuries. So it's quite routine behaviour in some respects. And you've got the Prince of Wales, the other Prince of Wales, the young Henry V, a teenager winning his spurs. So people will have be familiar with sort of Agincourt and his extraordinary campaigns in France. He led armies, apparently, didn't he, and learned, learned his trade here in North Wales. What about the Battle of Pilleth or Brynglas? in 1402. Is that a turning point? Because then Owain defeats an English force, a proper army, a conventional force in the field. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I mean, Pileth for Bringlass. It's interesting because, as you say, you know, it's an organised English force that are met in the field in their own terms and lose. And the reason they lose ultimately is because they're outfought on the battlefield. Owain picks a position at the top of the hill, the English forces come up from the bottom and, you know, good defensive position and they get routed. The other interesting thing that happens, of course, is that Edmund Mortimer, who is also related to the English royal line, gets captured. And then you have what appears initially to be a bargaining chip. Standard ransoming, capture someone important, you sell them back to the English crown for money. One of the great mysteries of Owen's rebellion is how he funded it all. We don't know. I mean, he clearly had money coming in. It's probably just took over the mechanisms of governance and authority from the English and extorted his own taxation. We know people in England are selling things to the Welsh rebels because the English enact laws against it, which is always a bit embarrassing when your own people are undermining your own military effect. So Pilfeth is interesting because it's a Welsh victory on straightforward military terms, but it also sets up the capability to intervene in English politics. Because with Edmund Mortimer, you have someone with a claim to the throne as good, more or less, as Henry IV, but on the Welsh side. There was a famous scene in Henry IV Part One, which glosses all this. You have Mortimer, you have Owain being very sort of bombastic and I'm the son of prophecy and all that sort of thing. And Edmund Mortimer saying, who marries one of Owain's daughters? Owain has a great many daughters, a great many sons, and they are married into the English gentry. They are married into the milieu in which Owain exists beforehand. There are always suspicions about those people who married Owain's children as to which side they were really on. John Scudamore married another of Owain's daughters, and there's a wonderful letter from him when he's besieged by his father-in-law in Carrig Kennen in Carmarthenshire. And he says in the letter with his family, so presumably Owen's daughter is in there too, being besieged by the forces led by her dad. And that must, the family dynamic of this does not make sense to modern eyes. But clearly, there's something matters more than, than blood in this period. And that's something we just can't access. Would that we could, but you know, it's just one of the many incoherent things to our eyes that just don't make sense. 
You're listening to Dan Snow's History. I'm talking about Owen Glyndor's revolt. More after this. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, from History Hit, we talk about everything from what Queen Consort Camilla could learn from the Renaissance. Really, when we begin to look at Queen Consorts, we notice that there's a lot of ways that women could have authority through their relationship with the king. To how you should never upstage Henry VIII. You'd have been a very unwise individual turning up to court, probably with a larger codpiece than the king, I suspect. From the real Matawaka, better known as Pocahontas. She's brought and presented to the king and queen as this shining example of what we could achieve. To how to tell someone to get lost. You could say, turd in your teeth. In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, Want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year? Join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores, and followed Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. So after this battle, Owen really does properly control parts of Wales, doesn't he? And he actually captures the castles, these mighty castles that people will be so familiar with, largely, not entirely, but largely built by the English. He now flies his flag above them. He's the Prince of Wales. He comes up with plans for church. He does international diplomacy. Is this really the last gasp of an independent Wales? No, he's trying to invent something new. That's what's really interesting about it, actually, because the international diplomacy is 
partly a function of being in opposition to England. And when you're in opposition to England, you look for allies. Owain succeeds in making his rebellion a proxy war against the English, which means he can draw in support from France. The international diplomacy you mentioned is penal letter, where he writes the French crown and says, this is my manifesto for Wales, which will be to have parliaments, to have two universities, one for the north, one for the south, to realign the church so that there is an archbishopric at St David's, and that archbishop rules over not only the Welsh diocese, but some of the English ones too. And I will also, because there's a papal schism at the time, and there's a French pope and an Italian pope, I will be loyal to the French papacy. So that is the price of getting French support, which he does succeed in doing. In 1404, the French send a large armed force with things like artillery, with cavalry, to support the Welsh resistance. They can do that because they see this as part of a wider conflict, a European conflict. So this Welsh example is only exactly the same as what's happening in Scotland. The Scots are a separate kingdom, of course, and their law to the French. You find in Brittany, in Flanders in Normandy later, and in all across the Iberian Peninsula, you find people picking a side of the English or the French as suits their own personal or domestic politics. Europe is riven by proxy conflicts and England and France are at the centre of it all. I want to come back to this, for me, this extraordinary moment, this forgotten moment of British history. People talk about 1066 and last invasions and this kind of nonsense, which is clearly, anyone listening to this podcast will know that the channel's been crossed many times since then. But this is really one of those extraordinary examples. A big French army lands, joins up with Oenglandur, advances into England, and there's this extraordinary standoff. It's almost one of the great battles of British history, but it doesn't happen. They get to a hill above Worcester, supposedly. It's basically one chronicle that says And they get to a hill above Worcester, and... For whatever reason, the English on one side, the Welsh and the French allies on the other, and they choose not to join battle. And that's obviously glossed in a variety of ways. The Welsh say, well, it's expedient. The English say, well, they're cowards. But people don't like to go into big battles because the risks are really very great. You might end up dead. And look at recent precedents from their point of view. In Poitiers in 1356, French king gets captured it sends France into civil war, conflict and strife and huge political problems for the next 50 years. Maybe that's what the French allies had in mind. They thought, well, we don't actually want to risk this for that. If we win, great, you know, but what if we lose? People don't like going to big battles because there is that good chance you're going to end up dead. So they set themselves up, but they don't go through with it. It's one of the many unanswered questions about Gondor's rebellion. We don't really know why. Wish we did, you know, it's one of the ones I'd love an answer to. But the other great possibility is that uh, at Aberystwyth, a couple of years later, which is being besieged by the English, Henry challenges Owain to single combat. It's a good chivalric thing to do. And the Welsh say, no. But you imagine, you know, somebody's in their fifth, uh, an experienced soldier in their 50s against, you know, a 16, 17 year old. My money's on the 50 year old because he's been through the battles before and he's come out alive. So it's a bold thing to do, but it's done out of piety in Henry's case. He wants to reduce this prospect of bloodshed. Henry's a very pious man, as is Owen in some ways, but he's got a lot more riding on it. <laughs> and you talk about young Henry there growing up. 
you're more confident about fighting Henry V than I am, I've got to say. Uh, you're a bit more bullish there. But if he is unlucky in his adversary, although we don't know how much direct control Henry would have had over his forces and whether his dad gave him sort of competent military advisors. He was one of the great geniuses of English military history. He would become one. And there's a brutal series of sieges in which this English force led by young Henry, slowly retakes North Wales. These great castles, some of them you see cannons used for the first time. It, these are brutal, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Harlech is the last sort of redoubt of Blundur's regime, if you like. It's where he holds his second parliament in 1407. And it gets the full force of English royal military power thrown against it. It's a set-piece engagement. I mean, they've sent artillery to Aberystwyth a bit earlier. One of the guns blew up, which is something that happens with guns in this period. But Hardach is one of those places, if you don't know it, it's set against the mountains of Marionef, against the sea. You can resupply it from the sea very easily, but you can't break out of it very easily. It's quite easy to pin down from the landward side because, I mean, Hardach, even today, it's just one road in, one road out. Or you can go over the mountains. Quite easy to blockade. And... It's quite easy to pin people down within it. And the same thing happens at, incidentally in the 1460s. And again, during the civil wars in the 17th century, Harlech is there standing alone and is able to hold up for a very long time. Although in the latter two cases, because it's more hassle than it's worth to take it. But in 1409, you can say, let's send the guns from the tower. Let's build a large army of experienced men. By this point, they've been fighting for the best part of a decade. Henry is a great leader, sure but he's building on the experience of English wars in France and the experience of men whose careers have been 10, 15, 20 or 30 years even in the making. So he's got lots to draw on. He's, he's in a leader because he's positioned. He's clearly very good at it. He has a talent and an aptitude for it. But he's able to do what he does because he's got a system of military infrastructure in England that has been built up fighting the French, fighting the Scots for... 50 years. There's lots of experience, lots of effort, lots of wherewithal and know-how that Henry is able to pull upon and does very skillfully. And the loss of Harlech Castle, it's eventually taken and it goes to being a kind of guerrilla leader, outlaw, and he's never found. How does the revolt go from there? It sort of peters out a bit because you lose that control of territory. What I would say is that it's a revolt that fades rather than is ended. Harlech is important because it's the last sort of significant castle or structure held. But until Glendora dies, which is probably around about the time of Agincourt. So we reckon Glendora died about sometime September, maybe October 1415, which at the point Henry is achieving his greatest victory, his sort of first opponent fades off the scene and dies. But while Henry is making his preparations for France... He has to make huge efforts to take control and make sure that Wales doesn't reignite again. He recruits Welsh soldiers to go with him in 1415 from South Wales, because that's stable enough, that's secure enough. North Wales, no. There's a wonderful letter from one of the rebels to the English saying, here I am, this is where I am, but you can't reach me. I've tried to come to peace with you. And this is in 1412. So he's still an open rebel this time. Glendors is... Never captured, never given up. There are lots of stories about where he died, about how he managed to achieve that. The Scudamores in Herefordshire, he's possibly spent out his days there. We don't know. But the stories are good because they draw on things like Arthurian myth. You know, he becomes the once and future king. But in terms of Owen the Man, 
He probably dies about 1415. And Henry is still worried that Wales might rebel again in his absence. He offers Owen pardon before he goes. And Owen clearly says no, which is interesting in itself. The English crown know who to ask to reach him, but they don't know how to get at him. 1416, a year later, he asks Owen again, but clearly they know that Owen has died. So they ask his last surviving free son. They offer him pardon. He eventually comes to terms five years later. So that sense that rebellion is not quite over is a decade or more after the actual business of defeating it militarily is concluded, which is amazing, really. It means the rebellion lasts in one way, shape or form for 20 years. What does Owen mean today in modern Wales? Certainly he's become a figure in which to hang things on. I mean, the 16th of September is now celebrated as Owen Glendore Day. And I don't think it was widely, at least, 20 or 30 years ago. You know, he's become adopted as a figurehead. Although the manifesto he drew up, which lies in one copy in the Archive Nationale in Paris, it's only become widely known since it was published in the early 20th century. But that manifesto has shaped political thinking in Wales ever since. There's a statue of Owen as one of the heroes of Wales in Cardiff City Hall, along with the poet Davavak Willem, along with Florida Griffith, Florida and the Last, Gerald of Wales. He's sort of in a pantheon of figures that the elite of Wales have chosen to adopt as part of their forefathers, almost mythical figures in a way. But the interesting about Owen is, you know, that happens very quickly after he's died. The praise poetry of the 15th century is full of references to Owain as they are to references to heroes from Greek myth, the great Welsh princes. He becomes just one of the stock characters you could be related to and how your ancestry could be celebrated. That happens quite quickly. But he's still there today. He survives because I think one of the key things he did was in his communications to the French, he set up a series of where Wales was, a set of physical boundaries. That's new. That hadn't happened before. So of the River Severn, up the River Mersey, the River Dee, that was defined as Wales, as territory we could call Wales. That's the one thing that he did that was genuinely new. Everything else, you could say he was chancing his arm, he was trying to sort of subvert and bring together various different people's ideas of what being in opposition to the English might mean. But he gave that a geographical expression, and that's really interesting, and that's the thing I think people have held on to. But otherwise, giving the English a bloody nose always goes down well. And still does. There was a tweet this morning from the England and Wales Cricket Board, you know, encouraging Wales and lots of people who hadn't realised it was the England and Wales Cricket Board were quite confused by this. But he's not someone that's, I think, known in English context very well at all. Well, Adam, you brought a tear to my eye when you talked about people claiming descent in wonderful praise poetry from Glyndor, because when I was young, I used to listen to my great nine telling me that we were also descended from Glendor. So, so, and maybe it was true. Maybe it's true. At this distance, probably you all are. But <laughs> Exactly. That, listen, we've had Adam Rutherford on the podcast talking about how we're all descended from the same ancestor. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Dan. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.